Welcome to Grim Gossip. Before we start the show, I want to give a proper warning. The episode you are about to hear may include grim details about assault, rape, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. Today's case is about Herb Bomeister. He was born on April 7, 1947, to his parents, Dr. Herbert and Elizabeth Bomeister, and was the oldest of four kids. It's said that he lived a pretty normal childhood until he got to be a teenager. Eventually, he began showing antisocial behavior and began playing with dead animals. He even peed on his teacher's desk and also left a dead crow on her desk when she wasn't looking. His childhood friends said that he often wondered out loud how human pee would taste. It's safe to say he didn't really fit in. His father eventually took him to have psychological tests done where he was diagnosed with schizophrenia and a possible disorder of multiple personalities. That is the extent of his medical history. There is no other documentation stating whether he was treated for his disorders or not, and it's believed that he never was. He went on to attend a public high school where he did well academically, but not socially. As hard as he might try to fit in with anyone, he failed, so he eventually stopped trying and spent his high school years alone. In 1965, he graduated high school and was accepted into Indiana University. He dropped out after the first semester, but decided to go back the following year, which is when he met Juliana, who he began dating. They came to find out that they both shared extremely conservative political views and also the same desire to own their own business, which drew them closer together. At this point, Herb decided to drop out again. Over the next two years, he would be in and out of school. In 1967, under pressure from his father, he went back to study anatomy, attempting to follow in his father's footsteps, who was an anesthesiologist, before finally deciding to not return to school ever again. After dropping out that last time, Herb's father pulled some strings and got him a job at the Indianapolis Star, which was the major newspaper in town. He was hired as the copy boy, and even though he considered this job to be a lower position that was beneath him, he really dove into his role. The advertising executive at the firm has stated that she remembers Herb as being sensitive to the way upper management viewed him, and he was fixated on being a somebody there. He dressed well for his role and was very eager to please and always looking for compliments on how well he was doing. In 1971, Herb and Juliana got married, but six months after their wedding, his father had him committed to a psych ward for two months. No one can explain why this happened, not even Juliana. Although she knew about his odd behavior, she still loved him and stuck by his side. In 1974, seven years after he had started his job at the Indianapolis Star, Herb realized he was in a dead-end job. He wasn't moving up and he never received the recognition he so badly craved. So he left his copyboy position for a job at the Bureau of Motor Vehicles. Instead of the eager copyboy he once was, he changed his demeanor to bossy and aggressive 
towards all of his co-workers, often lashing out at them for no reason. His co-workers described him as erratic and having a problem getting his priorities straight. He once sent a Christmas card out to all of the staff with a photo of himself and another man dressed in holiday drag, which at the time, the 1970s, was not something everyone found to be a joke. In 1979, Herb and Juliana gave birth to their first child, Marie. Two years later, in 1981, they had another child who they named Eric. Then three years later, they had their third and final child, Emily. After nine years of being at the Bureau of Motor Vehicles, he was promoted to program director. At this point, since he seemed to be doing so well in his position, Juliana quit her job and became a full-time stay-at-home mom. But this victory was short-lived when he was found peeing on a letter addressed to the then-governor, Robert D. Orr, which only confirmed the speculation about who peed on the desk of a manager a few months previously. This act resulted in Herb's immediate termination in 1985, not even a full year into his promotion. After he was fired, Juliana went back to work as a teacher. Herb then turned into a full-time stay-at-home dad. But while he was at home, he began to drink heavily. In 1985, Herb committed a hit-and-run while intoxicated and was arrested. The following year, he was charged with stealing his friend's car, but somehow he was able to talk his way out of both of these charges and never served any jail time. During all of this chaos, Herb's father passed away, which is said not to have any effect on him. While he was at home, he is said to have been a doting and loving father. Apparently, he loved being a dad to his children and took to his new role very well. But not long after Juliana went back to work, Herb actually began working at a local thrift shop. He really got into this job too, so much so that he began to examine the way the business itself worked. After he was there for a few years, when he saw the potential money-making opportunity in this business, he decided to take a leap of faith and open his own store. In 1988, Herb and Juliana borrowed $4,000 from his mother to start their own business, a thrift store which they named Save-A-Lot. The business, which sold gently used clothes and furniture, actually took off. Save-A-Lot was so successful that they were able to open another location the next year and began to give an annual donation of $50,000 to children's charities. Profits were so great that within three years, in 1991, Herb and Juliana were able to purchase their dream home, an 18-acre horse ranch called Fox Hollow Farms, in the upscale Westfield area just outside of Indianapolis in Hamilton County. The house not only came with land, but with horse stables and a nice indoor pool. The business became a family business, and he and Juliana worked closely together. Unfortunately, working closely together put a lot of stress on their marriage. Juliana began to feel as though she was an employee and not his wife. 
he had begun to treat her like he had treated his previous co-workers. Instead of continuing to fight, she began to take a step back from the business decisions. Over the next few years, the arguments would continue and the couple would take several separations or breaks from one another. Juliana would often go to visit his mother with the kids on the weekends in order to give Herb the space she thought he'd need. This also gave Herb the opportunity to focus on the business with no distractions. However, what no one knew at the time was that Herb was actually spending a lot of his weekends cruising the gay bars and picking up men. Around this time, a grim pattern of missing men started to reveal itself, seemingly beginning around 1991. Men ranging from 20 to 46 were disappearing without a trace, but the police chalked it up to these men living a, quote, high-risk lifestyle, unquote, or just being an adult, and if they wanted to leave their homes, they had every right to. They were considered runaways, basically, but not missing. Virgil Vandergriff, a retired Marion County sheriff who ran his own private investigation firm, stumbled onto this pattern when, in 1994, the mother of Alan Broussard contacted him for help. Alan was last seen leaving a gay bar in downtown Indianapolis and was reported missing in June of 1994, but she believed she needed additional help. A month later, Virgil received another distressing call from the mother of Roger Goodlett, who went missing under the same circumstances. Jumping right into this investigation, Virgil began spending his evenings at the bars these two men visited often. He questioned other patrons and even put up posters for any leads. But during his investigation of Alan and Roger, he came to find out that there were many more men who went missing under similar circumstances. It was clear this was not just a one-off situation, but a case of serial kidnapping and possible murder. When Virgil took his findings to the police, they gave him the same speech they gave to the mothers. These men had probably just run off to live a provocative and gay lifestyle. At this point, Virgil's investigation came to a halt. Around this time in 1994, even though Herb was supposed to have been focusing on growing the business, it began to take a nosedive. This caused more issues within the marriage. But Juliana carried on their lives as normal in order to not stir the pot. It's said that he started to act erratically with his employees, treating them as though they were beneath him. But this might seem normal to anyone who actually knew Herb. One day, while the children were playing in the backyard near the tree line of the woods, Eric walked back to the house with a new toy. When he reached the house, it was clear that his new toy was actually a human skull on a stick. When Juliana asked him where he found that, Eric led her back to the woods and showed her, where she discovered more bones. When Herb came home that night, Juliana told him what their son had found, but Herb had an explanation for this. He said the bones belonged to his father and that he had let Herb use them while studying anatomy in college before he dropped out. He assured her that he would get rid of them properly.
She thought this was a reasonable explanation and didn't ask any more questions. At this point, Virgil was beginning to lose hope that he'd make any more progress on his missing persons case. That was until a man, who we'll call Tony, approached Virgil with his own story. Tony was friends with Roger Goodlett, one of the men who had gone missing previously. One night, while Tony was out at the bars, he met a man named Brian Smart. They spent the evening drinking and talking and generally just having a good time. Brian then asked Tony if he wanted to join him back at his employer's house where he was said to have been staying temporarily while doing construction work, to which Tony agreed. On their way back to the house, Tony said it was hard to tell where they were going because it was so dark and he was a little drunk. But about 30 minutes later, they arrived at a large, Tudor-style home on a lot of land. Brian led Tony back to the pool house, where Brian had set up multiple mannequins in and around the pool to make it appear as though there was a party going on. Brian offered Tony a drink, but Tony was beginning to feel uneasy, so he declined. Then, Brian asked Tony if he had ever participated in erotic asphyxiation before, to which Tony replied with a no. He asked Tony if he would be interested in trying it, and not wanting to piss off this complete stranger, Tony agreed. So with a rubber water hose, Tony choked Brian while Brian masturbated. Once he finished, they switched positions. But not long into the switch, Tony felt the hose getting tighter and tighter, and Brian was not stopping. Not knowing what to do at this point, Tony pretended to pass out. When he did this, Brian loosened the hose and let Tony's body fall. But when Tony felt Brian let go, he opened his eyes and got up. Brian was visibly shocked that this man had just stood up. It was clear he intended to kill Tony and thought he had died already. Brian clearly wanted his guests to leave now, so he offered to drive Tony back to Indianapolis. In an attempt to pretend his behavior wasn't out of the norm, he asked Tony if they could see each other again the following week, and Tony said yes. But when the time came, Brian never showed up. Virgil went to the police again with this information. But this time he contacted Mary Wilson, who was a detective who worked in missing persons. She took these allegations seriously and took Tony to the wealthy areas outside of Indianapolis, hoping he would recognize a house or the area, but he was unable to recall anything. A year later, Tony ran into Brian at a bar again. He ran outside to see if Brian was still driving the same car, and he was, so Tony wrote down the license plate number for Virgil, who would later run the plates and find out the car did not belong to anyone named Brian Smart but to a local businessman named Herb Bomeister. With this information, Mary went to the store to confront Herb. She told him he was a suspect in an investigation regarding several missing men. She asked for permission to search his home, which he of course refused, and advised that any further communication with him would need to go through a lawyer. Not deterred at all, Mary then went to Juliana to talk to her. 
Mary told her that Herb was a suspect in a, quote, homosexual homicide, unquote, and she asked for Juliana's permission to search their property. Juliana was shocked by what she was hearing and refused to believe her husband could be involved in any such thing. She also denied Mary access to their home. Mary then tried to get the county officials to issue a search warrant, but they also denied her request, telling her that there wasn't enough conclusive evidence for a warrant. Over the next few months, her began to feel the walls closing in on him and began having emotional breakdowns. Juliana couldn't stop thinking about the bones her son found after Mary had visited her. The store was now facing bankruptcy and their dream life was starting to fall apart. In June of 1966, Juliana had had enough of Herb's mood swings and finally filed for divorce. At this point, she also gave Mary permission to search the property while Herb and their son Eric were away visiting Herb's mother at Lake Wawasee. On June 24th, Mary and three Hamilton County police officers began to search the Bowmeister property, but didn't have to search that hard before they came across what they were looking for. In the grassy area, right next to the back patio where the kids played, were what looked like small rocks and pebbles, but were actually bone fragments. The next day, Mary returned with more police and firemen and began the excavation, which uncovered many more bones than they thought they'd find. Over 5,500 bone fragments and teeth were located on the property. Although there were that many bone fragments, they estimated it to be around 11 men total. Roger Goodlett, 34, Stephen Hale, 26, Richard Hamilton, 20, Manuel Resendez, 31, Johnny Bayer, 20, Alan Broussard, 28, Jeff Jones, 31, and Michael Kiern, 46. All seven men had been reported missing between 1993 and 1996. The other four men were not identified. Before the news of discovery could spread, a shocked Juliana panicked about her son's safety and served her with custody papers immediately. He thought this was just a legal tactic on her part since they were getting a divorce, and he returned their son without incident. However, now that Eric was safe, news of the boneyard discovery was broadcasted. As soon as the news was televised, Herb vanished. He ran away to Ontario, where he decided to take his own life at the Pinery Provincial Park. He left a suicide note detailing why he had committed suicide, saying that he had failed in marriage, in business, and ultimately in life. There was no mention of the bodies that were uncovered and no final confession of murders. In addition to the bodies that were found on the Fox Hollow Farms estate, it's speculated that he was actually involved with murders of young men along Interstate 70, the main highway linking Indianapolis to Columbus, Ohio, a route Herb took often. Nine men were found dumped along this stretch of highway who died from strangulation. Because there was no confession, 
and nothing else linking the I-70 murders to Herb, those murders remain unsolved. But family members of his known victims were able to bury their loved ones and finally be at ease knowing they had not just run away and cut the family off. Throughout this chaos, Juliana has stated she had no idea that Herb was capable of any of this, or that he was a closeted homosexual. Even though she did confess that throughout all of their years of marriage, they had only had sexual intercourse six times total. And that is where the case ends. If you guys enjoyed today's episode, there's many more to come. Hit the subscribe button so that you get notifications when new episodes drop. If you have any suggestions, send them my way at grimgossippod at gmail.com and follow me on Instagram at grimgossippod. All websites used for the research is in the show notes if you guys want to take a deeper dive into this case. Thank you for listening. Until next time.